Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mike DeMaven podcast. I'm Mike Cologne. Of course, before we get to our interview with Bob Costas, you're going to notice the setup is a little bit different this time around with this particular episode. The reason being, it's a hybrid edition of the Mike DeMaven podcast. I'm on Zoom per usual. And of course, you'll see me throughout the episode and my mannerisms and my questions. But Bob Costas is not. He preferred to do a call in. And so he's, of course, over the phone for this edition of the show. Uh, whereas, like I said, I'm on Zoom. So just a quick little aside, it might sound a little bit different than normal because I don't have somebody on the Zoom call with me. We'll get back to that with uh, subsequent editions of the show. But in the meantime, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy this interview. Bob was great. And I will see you at the end of the show. And I will see you, of course, as always, next episode too. So enjoy it. Bob Costas on the mic in New Haven podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Mike the New Haven Podcast. This, of course, is going to be a really fascinating episode. If you haven't checked out the previous uh, installations of the podcast, it was with New York Daily News Police Bureau Chief Rocco Periscandola, who uh, talked about, of course, how he started covering the NYPD and his interesting journey through the years covering the NYPD during the 90s when they had a turbulent decade with things both good and bad, and, of course, covering the NYPD since 9-11. Uh, previously before that was retired NYPD detective and Haas's negotiator, Al Titus. So we go from that aspect of the show, which is an eclectic mix as always, to today's guest, which is really uh, just an honor to have him. My next guest is regarded amongst his peers as one of the best sportscasters of all time. A 40-year veteran, formerly of NBC, he's broadcasted the MLB, NFL, NBA, uh, called several World Series and NBA Finals in addition to having reported from 11 Olympic Games. Since he left his role at NBC a few years ago, he's still active currently serving as a studio host for TBS, sports contributor to CNN, host of Back on the Record on HBO, and lead play-by-play man for the MLB Network. And that, of course, is the legendary Bob Costas, who joins us now on the Mike Dave Podcast. Mr. Costas, welcome. How are you? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So first things first, New York boy, born in Queens, but raised primarily on Long Island. Uh, Irish mom, Greek dad. What was your childhood like? was an important part of the experience. So I think that without 
even realizing it, even as I was following the games of the players, the idea of being a broadcaster was somewhere rattling around in my uh, child's head. Um, so, you know, you attended Comac High School, and during middle school, but especially during high school when you're starting to make that step towards college, that's where you have some really influential figures, besides your parents, of course, to guide you in the right direction. But not only that, but help you maintain your footing. So for that stage in your life, who would you credit as those, again, again besides your parents, that helped you maintain that focus and continue the pursuit of that dream? Well, when I got to Syracuse University, and I, I would credit my guidance counselor in high school, it was much less sophisticated then than it is now, where people can go on the Internet and every university has uh, websites that uh, extol the virtues of their various programs and their campus and everything else, then what you had was a pamphlet maybe from each university. And the guidance counselor, you said to him, well, I'm interested in communications. And the guidance counselor said, well, there's Syracuse University and the University of Michigan is big in that and Fordham has a good program and Northwestern in Chicago and the University of Missouri and that's pretty much the way you got it. So uh, Syracuse rang a bell with me not just because of its proximity uh, to New York where I'd grown up but because I was aware that Marty Glickman, the first voice of the Knicks and also the radio voice of the New York Giants and later the Jets, a very much renowned uh, New York City sports broadcaster, both Marty Glickman and his protege, Marv Albert, had gone to Syracuse. And since then, dozens and dozens of broadcasters, most of them, not exclusively, but most of them sports broadcasters, have uh, attended Syracuse and gone on uh, to much success. So I have to give my high school guidance counselor, whose name was Robert Patterson, some credit for that. But then once I got to Syracuse, uh, it was really the combination of like-minded kids, my fellow students who had an interest in broadcasting. Uh, we were on the campus radio station, WAER. Many of us became lifelong friends that I'm still in regular touch with, and most went on to successful careers in one aspect of broadcasting or another. So just kind of being with like-minded people with like interests, we'd critique each other. There was a kind of energy there. That was a big factor. And then I had one professor at Syracuse University who has since passed away, uh, but his name was Stan Alton, and he was part of the, uh, the faculty at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse, and he took a particular interest in me. He actually saw something in me that I wasn't sure of at that stage, and he told me that if I worked at it, that I had a chance to be not just reasonably competent, but maybe better than that. And he would critique my broadcasts, and he wouldn't spare me any criticism if he thought I deserved it at that early stage. And even when I was at NBC into the 1980s, um, he would sometimes call me or write to me with critiques of my network broadcasts, uh, which I appreciated very much. Maybe other people would have said, hey, can't you see I'm on NBC? I know what I'm doing here. But uh, he had great insight. Uh, into my ability and maybe also where I might have fallen short of what my own standards should have been. So uh, I think that he had a great, in fact, I know that he had a great influence on my development in terms of the development of craft. He didn't help me get jobs, but he did help me get better at my job. Bob 
Costas is our guest here in the Mike and Haven podcast. We're certainly happy to have him. This, of course, is uh, episode, I believe, 124. I'm losing count at this point. It's been a lot of them, but nonetheless, happy to have Bob here. So that first play-by-play job was in the ABA for a while, St. Louis Spirits, and a mixture of not only the St. Louis Spirits, but also the Missouri Tigers play-by-play. So, you know, again, you talked about the critiques of broadcast. Basketball is a great sport to start in doing play-by-play because it's a relatively fast-paced sport. It's fast-paced sport, I should say, especially now with a three-point shot being as prominent as it is. So talk about learning on the fly, covering those two teams, uh, watching the way the game was played. Uh, tell me about what it taught you about your skills early on and what were some of the more notable players you got to cover? Well, you're right, especially on the radio, and the broadcasts that I did on KMOX in St. Louis were radio broadcasts of pro basketball and then Missouri Tigers at the college level. Um, And you have to be quick. You have to not only be accurate, but you have to be quick because the pace of a basketball game is quick. You think of Marv Albert, those who remember Marv, when he was the radio voice of the Knicks when they had their truly great teams in the 1970s. It wasn't just that he had signature phrases, which he did. Um, It wasn't just that his calls were accurate. His calls had a staccato rhythm to them that matched the way the Knicks moved the ball around the court so that you could see in your mind's eye, and much fewer games were on television then than they are now. In your mind's eye, you could picture the game, as Marv called it, which is an approach he learned from his mentor, Marty Glickman. Once Marty had established that he kind of was the pioneer broadcaster uh, when it came to basketball, uh, the various phrases, head of the key, in the lane, uh, the way he described the geometry of the court was new until he laid it out, and now it seems commonplace. So on the radio, your objective is that somebody who's familiar with the players listening to the game on the radio can see that game in his or her mind's eye. That was that was my objective. And I was young, and I was in my early 20s, and I was quick. I had done some minor league hockey while I was still at Syracuse, and I was able to keep up with fast-paced action. So I was well-suited to it then. I don't know how well I could do it now, but thankfully I don't have to find out. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. And you mentioned uh, another broadcaster that was great at that, painting the picture on the radio as far as basketball is concerned, is the late, great Chick Hearn out in Los Angeles, to where Chick, it was interesting in that the games were simulcast on his, he, he was unique in that his broadcast on the radio was also simulcast on television. So you had the benefit of getting him in both places, but still, he was so descriptive that if you were in the car stuck in that infamous L.A. traffic, you didn't feel like you were missing anything, you know? Whatever right. viewer saw Kobe or Shaq throwing down an alley-oop and making an exciting play, they felt that same excitement listening on the radio, and that's, of course, the hallmark of, of any great broadcaster. And so that brings us to 1980 and you getting to NBC. I believe you've told this story uh, on center stage with Michael K. previously, but for those unfamiliar with it, how did the opportunity to join NBC come about? Well, I had actually done some regional games on CBS beginning in 1976. Mm-hmm. KMOX was an owned and operated station of CBS, not just an affiliate. CBS owned a half dozen stations around the country, so they were really part of the network. And a number of KMOX sports broadcasters, Jack Buck among them, had done network games on a regular basis. And they had an opening um, one particular football Sunday. They had a slot to fill, a small regional television. 
broadcast. It wasn't going to the entire nation. And they called KMOX and said, um, who have you got? And they said, well, we have a kid here. He's 24. He looks much younger than that. And they said, well, we only got three or four days. Send him to Green Bay. And I went to Green Bay and did the game and did pretty well. And they brought me back. I was never uh, that prominent, but I was doing, I probably did, I don't know, a couple of dozen NBA games and NFL games between 1976 and 79 uh, for CBS. And I don't think I was that well known to the general public, but people in the industry, I guess, had taken notice. So it was on the basis of those CBS games that uh, Don Olmeyer, who ran NBC Sports, hired me, as you said, in 1980, and they threw me right into the fire. They gave me a full schedule of NFL games. Uh, they gave me uh, some baseball games to do. Um, it wasn't until a few years later that I became part of the regular Saturday afternoon game of the week uh, broadcast team for NBC, but I did fill in on games beginning in uh, the 19, early 1980 season. Uh, and they used me on other things. Um, for They had a show called Sports World, which was their answer to Wide World of Sports, kind of an anthology thing. So I did a, a wide variety of, of features for them, and it was kind of sink or swim. Uh, I was kind of surprised that they had that much confidence in me to throw me right into it, and some of these assignments were pretty prominent. They were national games, not regional games, uh, so at least I didn't screw it up badly enough for them to cut the cord, and they kept bringing me back, and I guess I got better as I went along, and eventually I was pretty well established there. You know, it's easy to become when you're that young starstruck because I had this conversation. And I mention it often because I was he was he was such a great interview, and that's John Miller, who I'm sure you know, who's currently the deputy commissioner uh, for counterintelligence at the NYPD. John, of course, was a journalist years before at NBC, and you know when he was telling me when he got there, you know, he walks in the door in New York at Rockefeller Center, and there's Gabe Pressman, and there's Chuck Scarborough, and all these different legends. And for you, I imagine it was the same thing. You did this for the first three years, NFL play-by-play. And for any great play-by-play man, for as great as he is, uh, what helps him, of course, is a good color guy. Like you see that right now with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. Or before with hockey on ESPN, Gary Thorne was a great, still is a great play-by-play man. But Bill Clement really added so much to those broadcasts. So that being said for you, who was the color guy that for a young 20-something at the time helped you feel more at ease in the booth? Well... I had a variety of partners early on, and I appreciated all of them, but I guess the one who was fully established and where he and I as a team kind of clicked uh, in the audience's mind was Tony Kubek, who had been part of NBC's baseball coverage at the highest levels, All-Star Games, World Series, and whatnot, working with people like Kurt Gowdy and Jim Simpson and Joe Garagiola. And he and I became a team in 1983, and continued together on the Game of the Week and on postseason broadcasts until NBC lost the baseball package after the 1989 season. So I think that Tony was probably the first before Ahmad Rashad, before Bob Euchre and Joe Morgan, before Doug Collins on basketball, before Bob Trumpy when I was doing play-by-play of football and before I switched to hosting in the studio. Tony Kubek was probably the one uh, that people first associated me with as as a duo in the booth. Bob Costas is our guest here in the Mike Naven podcast. I still can't believe I'm saying that. I'm trying not to get, not to get starstruck right now. But uh, nonetheless, you know, okay, so that brings us perfectly into your time covering baseball, originally on uh, NBC from 82 to 89, and then later on again from 94 to 2000. But 
there were a lot of games that you got to be at the helm for, a lot of notable moments during that decade. The Ryan Sandberg game, it was a regular season game at Wrigley Field. You were on call for that, amongst many other ones. So but that first game, I talked earlier about going into the booth. But for someone like yourself, who I remember when you were filling in for Michael Kay a couple of years ago, you said you grew up wanting to be the voice of the Yankees. And it's not the Yankees, but nonetheless, you're on a national network, you're in the booth, they're trusting you as a lead play-by-play -play guy. That first game is often very, very nerve-wracking because even if you have a little bit of experience, you want to make sure you do everything right. So for you, sure. was that your case and what helped you calm down? Well, I guess just getting a few games under your belt and luckily having those broadcasts being generally well-received, I certainly thought that there was room for me to get better. But I wasn't being told, forget it, find another line of work. The feedback was generally pretty good, and that helps to calm your nerves a little bit. Uh, when the person you're working with uh, kind of gives you a pat on the back and seems comfortable, even though it was always the case that the person I was working with was older than me and more established either as an athlete or broadcaster or both. So when they, with some kind of veteran status, seem to welcome me and, and assure me that I belonged there, then that helped to calm the nerves. Uh, but it, it takes a while before those nerves are completely gone. I imagine. And I want to have a, a quick aside here, because I think in the mid-'80s, you were in New York. I don't know if this was the mid-'80s or the early-'90s, but I imagine it was the mid-'80s. And I want to ask you uh, up front about this. So you're in a restaurant in the city, and sitting across from you, or a few tables down from you, is John Gotti, the notorious Gambino crime boss. Why don't you tell us that story? Well, it was actually the early 90s, okay. and Syracuse had played Missouri at Madison Square Garden, and those were two teams I was connected with, two schools, because I had obviously attended Syracuse and broadcast some of their games on uh, the campus station. And then I had been the voice of the Missouri Tigers on radio for a number of years, and I was good friends with both Norm Stewart, the Missouri coach, and Jim Beheim, the Syracuse coach. So I went to the game, and I sat behind one bench for the first half and the other bench for the second half, so it was not to show favoritism. But when the game ended, uh, Syracuse went back upstate to Syracuse, and the Missouri people were left. I guess they didn't fly back until the next day. And so... Um, some of them said, uh, you know the city, where should we go for dinner? And it was late at night, like on a January night, and it was very cold and snowing. Uh, but I knew a place in Little Italy that I had frequented, and I knew they would stay open for us, so I called, and we went there. And it was getting close to midnight by the time we were finishing up our meal, and there were only a couple of tables occupied at that point. And I looked up, and who should be walking in but John Gotti? along with a couple of his henchmen. And it became obvious right away that he was a regular at this restaurant uh, because the maitre d' rushed to greet him and the waiter almost dropped the rigatoni in my lap. He was so uh, uh, distracted by Gotti walking in. It was pretty clear that he was uh, an imperial presence there. And he was every inch the dapper Don, perfectly coiffed, like a $2,000 overcoat, perfectly tailored suit. You know, they took his coat from him as if, as if it was the cape of a prince, and they showed him to a table not far from ours. And the, the people from Missouri in our group began to buzz, like maybe this was something they should be concerned about. And I had to allay their fears. I said, no, no, unless you've done business with Mr. 
in the safest place in all of New York. So a few minutes go by, and the maitre d' comes up and he says, Mr. Costas, Mr. Gotti would like to buy you a drink. And as I've told the story before, I'm thinking at this point, we probably had about enough to drink at this point. On the other hand, I put this in the category of an offer you could not refuse. <laughs> so I say, okay, bring us a little more Chianti. And when the wine arrived, I raised my glass, I looked toward Gotti, and I said, Mr. Gotti, thank you. And he goes, Bob, I like your work. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to say now? I like your work too. Nice rub out at Sparks Steakhouse. Highly efficient. I'm thinking that probably wouldn't be the best thing to say. So I said something like, well, thank you, Mr. Gotti. Thank you. Enjoy your evening. And he turns to his henchman. He goes, Bob Costas, sportscaster. So I turn to the people from Missouri at my table and I whisper, John Gotti, murderer. <laughs> it's pretty much the story. <laughs> and that was at the peak of his powers because, of course, for my listeners, as I mentioned in the aforementioned Miller interview, and John had numerous interactions with Gotti throughout the 80s when he was at NBC. Gotti had a, uh, infamously had Paul Castellano and his driver, Tommy Bellotti, shot dead outside Spark Steakhouse in Manhattan. Correct. In December of 1985, a few days before Christmas. And so, you know, you go into later, hosting later for a while on NBC. And I emulate, there's a lot of different people that I emulate in my style of interviews, which I hope I'm, I, I do my best at. Um, and you're one of them because you're able to get so much out of your guests but make them feel very comfortable in the process. So, yeah, it's a formal interview, and they know that, but they don't feel like they're being interrogated. And I feel like some interviewers have the bad tendency, even if they don't mean to, to badger the guest and make it seem like it's a cop questioning a criminal. So for you going into later, tell me about your personal approach to interviews. And this is a two-part question. What some of your favorite interviews from that time frame were? Well, there are too many good ones, really, to cite. We were lucky with the people we were able to Because there might have been a new 
say. You're trying to make sure the person is comfortable. That doesn't mean you're you're fawning over them or throwing them only softballs, but you can usually engage them when they recognize, either because they're familiar after the show has been on the air for a while, they're familiar with the show and they have a certain respect for the tone and content of the program, or even if they're not that familiar, once you've gone through your first several questions and they realize this isn't the usual boilerplate thing, the same questions I've been asked over and over again, but this person has really done his homework and or he really knows about my career to begin with. And so if he's got enough respect for me as the interview subject to come to it prepared this way, then I ought to raise my own game and not go on autopilot and give him answers that are worthy of his questions and of his interest in my life and in my career. And usually if that was the connection that was made, most of the time it was, if that was the connection that was made, then you got more uh, than you usually would get from that person in the average interview. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Bob Costas is our guest here on the Mike and Evan podcast. It's a bit of a hybrid edition of the show. I'm on Zoom. Uh, but Bob is uh, over the phone, uh, which is a little bit of a throwback to uh, the early days of this show. That's how I used to do my interviews. Certainly happy to have Bob here. So what was lost with NBC losing Major League Baseball was gained when they got the NBA, because CBS had the NBA, and after the 89-90 season, NBC swooped in and got the great deal. And it was perfect timing, because this is really the pinnacle. I mean, the NBA is great now. And it certainly helps that the Bulls are relevant again, and my Knicks, you know, who I've suffered with for years, are finally relevant again. But the 90s was the pinnacle for the sport, I think, and because of the Bulls dynasty, and also so many great teams, both in big markets and small. Yes, the Knicks were great, but you had the Pacers that were great, too. You had the Seattle Supersonics who were great, and many other teams that I could name. So you were a studio host from 90 to 97, and then, of course, you took over play-by-play, -play, which we'll get to a little bit later, from 97 until Marv came back in 01. But that time, covering that dynasty up close, before we dive into it, what I do want to ask you, being in the studio, you have to make sure the chemistry is right, you have analysts that want to get in there, you want to cater to their strengths, what makes an effective studio host, in your opinion? Well, I don't think an effective studio host is merely a traffic cop, but you have to master the traffic cop aspects. You have to keep things moving. You have to have a clock in your head. How long is this segment supposed to be? Um, you have to move the ball around, so to speak. You have to be a bit of a point guard and distribute uh, the assists and make the other people look good and get the ball to them, if I constrain this metaphor, in a position where they can do something good with it. So you learn as you go uh, what are the strengths of the various people around you, what sort of question sets them up best, uh, are they a self-starter or do they need a little bit of prodding? Um, and after a while, they should trust you that your only interest is in making the show itself as good as possible. So if they shine, you shine. So everybody uh, looks better when everyone succeeds. That has to be your, uh, your objective. But if, if you're only a traffic cop, if you're only a nuts and bolts guy, then you're not bringing anything of yourself to it. Think of Ernie Johnson on Inside the NBA, which is probably the best studio show ever in the history of American TV sports. Does he set up Shaq, Charles, and Kenny? Of course he does. Does he react to them? Yes. But he also very subtly has opinions of his own, makes points of his own, provides information. He's not just a generic host. 
He's a discernible personality. And I think if you can combine those two things, then you've got the essence of what makes someone successful in that role. We saw now, getting to the second aspect of the question, a transition from the Lakers and the Showtime dynasty of the 80s and the Celtics and Bird leading the way of the 80s into Michael's time. And there was that passing of the torch moment in 91 when Magic Johnson, unbeknownst to us, playing in his last season, he would come back later, but of course he left due to the diagnosis of HIV, uh, losing in the finals to Michael. And you saw that firsthand, especially in 98, but for that first three-peat, seeing that team, seeing how well they played, seeing how they seemed to dominate the competition, the wars that they had with the Pistons and then finally overcoming them, uh, of course, the wars that they would have with my Knicks. Watching Michael up close, what was he like to be around? Well, I wouldn't say that I was close to him. We were very respectful and appreciative professional acquaintances. Um, and so I respected the way he carried himself, not just on the court, but off. Um, when he was interviewed, he was always prepared and alert. He didn't phone it in. Um, it was obvious that he was intelligent uh, and had um, a sense of what was required of him. He took his role as one of the representatives and ultimately maybe the representative uh, of the NBA. He took that seriously. But the most important thing was not just the success of the Bulls and of Jordan individually, but his dynamism, his charisma, you could feel it. Uh, people who had only a casual interest, if that, in basketball, became really interested in the NBA. At first, in fairness, Dr. J, Magic, Larry, but then it really peaked in the 90s with Jordan. So it was a whole different thing. It, there was a, a water cooler, you know, office conversation about a Bulls game the day after that just doesn't exist now because the NBA is mostly a cable sport. As good as some of these players are, as good as some of the teams have been, it isn't as central to the public conversation as it was in the 80s and 90s. Remember, all those games with Jordan in the 90s, all the, all the important games, were on NBC, on a real network before cable completely exploded to where there's so many different choices that you wonder what it is that really aggregates um, a big audience with diverse demographics. But the NBA on NBC during that period of time certainly did. And that enhanced Jordan's legend. I mean, he was great enough and would be great and would be legendary in any era. But the combination of circumstances that surrounded him just just made it all, all the more engaging and all the more unforgettable. Uh, so, you know, when, when you were in Michael Jordan's presence, I don't think I was ever uh, dumbfounded by it. By that time, I'd been in the business for a very long time. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a case of being starstruck or anything like that. But I certainly appreciated that this was a guy who was among the handful of most significant athletes in American history. June 17th, 1994. Michael had left the previous year, um, as was chronicled in The Last Dance. You know, he was going through the, the tragic uh, aftermath of the murder of his father. He had wanted to play baseball in his honor, and he left. And we get into this time in which the league is wide open. Okay, the Bulls are still good, but that X factor is missing. And the Knicks, who, who had been the Bulls' patsy pretty much for the first part of the 90s, getting beat three straight years. And ironically, and this is part of this, I know this because if you're a Knicks fan, the, the pain is seared into your soul. 
<laughs> to where even if you even if it's not your pain per se, because I wasn't alive then, you inherit the previous generation's pain. It got knocked down the first round in ninety one, second round ninety two, third round conference finals ninety three. So it was a gradual uh, scaling of the ladder, so to speak. And so finally they're in the finals. And this is supposed to be a great time for New York because the Knicks are in the finals. The Rangers has finally won the Stanley Cup after 54 years. But that gets interrupted because a few days before that, uh, Ron uh, Goldman and Nicole Simpson were murdered brutally. And O.J. in that white Bronco with A.C. Cowlings behind the wheel is going down the freeway with a gun to his head. Um, you knew O.J. He had been an analyst on NBC prior. Um, and you're watching this surreal scene unfold with somebody that you once called a friend. What was that like from your perspective, from finding out about this chase to watching this this saga, this, you know, Greek, not, not even a Greek tragedy, play out before your very eyes? Well, I think Tom Brokaw actually referred to it on the air as a Greek tragedy. And from a broadcasting standpoint, it was unlike anything before or since uh, in my career. Uh, it was a tightrope walk because it was game five of the NBA Finals, huge national audience, um, people that are interested, intensely interested in the game. We couldn't put the game completely aside. So there were times when it was my job to kind of move it from Marv Albert calling the game to Tom Brokaw for an update and then back again. And then there were times when the screen was split and Tom was talking over the Bronco as it moved down the 405 and trying to piece together what bits of information were available. And then without Marv's commentary, you could still see the game in the other half of the screen with the score at the bottom and the time remaining and whatnot. Um, so that, that presentation was unlike the other networks, plus the cable outlets like CNN, who were going full, full screen, all the time with the Bronco chase and everything that surrounded it. NBC had this unusual situation of trying uh, to walk a fine line between this unfolding tragedy which riveted the nation and also a basketball game of considerable importance. Uh, and the fact that I knew O.J. Certainly, certainly had an effect on my emotions, but it did not have an effect on what I did on the air. There has to be a level of professionalism. So I was, um, you know, I had a, a feeling about this, and it was becoming more and more apparent that the evidence was piling up against O.J., but at the same time, I had a, a personal sense to some degree of the scope of the tragedy and of some of the people involved. Um, and O.J. had mentioned, for example, in his, in his note, which most people interpreted as a suicide note, he had mentioned Ahmad, he had mentioned Ahmad Rashad, who had been a close friend for a very long time, and that and Ahmad was part of our NBA coverage, uh, and he was he was shaken uh, by what was happening because of his close relationship with OJ. But all of us all of us put those feelings aside and did as professional a job as we possibly could. And we transitioned from that into again I mentioned in '94, uh, baseball returned to NBC. And this, again, it, you were in the eye of the storm because you did have the Bulls dynasty and the beginning of the Lakers dynasty, too, with the three people in the early 2000s, which we'll get to. But, you know, it's amazing because you got to cover another dynasty in the Yankee dynasty, but before that, 95, that World Series, Braves, Indians, the team in the 90s has its championship. 
And then, of course, next year, the Jeffrey Mayer game. And you cover Game 7 between the Marlins and the Indians, the World Series in 99, the ALCS in 2000. Uh, those games, and I'll ask you about your partners in the booth in a moment, of course, the late, great Joe Morgan and Bob Euchre. But as far as the games themselves, 97, Marlins, Indians, and, of course, all those great Yankee games, I just mentioned Jeffrey Mayer. Take me through some of the more notable moments and how a broadcaster, especially in a moment, for example, as odd as Mayer, has to put aside the what the heck just happened and make sure they properly transcribe the action. Well, what the heck just happened actually is part of the reaction. Um, sometimes the broadcaster's reaction, even while maintaining uh, professionalism and taking care of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, is to reflect the emotion of people in the stadium or the arena and those watching at home. And I think the immediate reaction is, what the heck just happened? Luckily, what we did, Bob Euchre, Joe Morgan, and me, in that moment, still holds up. Uh, we heard a lot of old games in a variety of sports when sports were shut down by COVID in 2020. And the Major League Baseball Network played that game in full at one point. And as I watched it, and have, not having seen it in two decades or more, uh, I was satisfied that we had covered it really well in the moment, both the live call and then with all the things that surrounded it and the, the controversy and people being ejected and all the replays. Um, I, think, I think we nailed it, which, which is good. You don't always, but you hope to at least most of the time. Uh, you mentioned the Braves. In 95, that's a call I'd like to have back. Not that it was a bad call. Um, the Braves had been in the World Series in 91 and 92. They'd been in the NLCS in 93. Uh, there was no World Series in 94 because of the strike. Then they're back in the World Series in 95. So to that point in the decade, they were the team of the 90s. And even as late as 1999, had the Braves won that World Series over the Yankees, then they and the Yankees would both have had two world championships in the decade, and the Braves would have had many more postseason appearances and more overall success. Who could have thought that the Yankees, beginning in 96, would put together a run that actually extended to 2000 when they won another World Series, and 2001 when they went to the seventh game of the World Series before losing to the Diamondbacks. So... The team of the 90s has its world championship felt right in the moment, but it doesn't hold up as well as I might have liked it to have held up uh, when we look at what I didn't have a crystal ball to see, which was that another team that previously was not part of the discussion would not only begin a run in 96, but that night that run would eclipse, once they swept them in the World Series in 99, would eclipse what the Braves had done. Sometimes... Um, you think of a better thing than what you actually said, even if what you said is pretty good. Sometimes you think of a better thing only moments later. There are some broadcasters, and you can tell when it happens, who have scripted certain things in anticipation of certain outcomes. I have thoughts in my head, but I've never scripted anything for a moment like that. So Marquise Grissom made the catch in left center field. Uh, ended the game, the Braves win at home, so there's all kinds of pandemonium, the fans are going nuts, and they're celebrating on the field. So once I said the team of the 90s has its world championship, you just shut up for a little while, and maybe three or four seconds later, a better line 
occurred to me, which was Atlanta at last. You know, it has a certain a certain sound to it. Mm-hmm. Atlanta at last. And that would have summed up exactly what they felt because they were on the brink of it so many times, they and their fans, and at last they had it. Atlanta at last. If I had said that, I would have been happy to this day with it and never second-guessed myself. But it occurred to me just a few seconds too late. I think you succinctly summed it up, though, when Chad Curtis caught Keith Lockhart's fly ball in 99 at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium, in which you just simply said the New York Yankees world champions, team of the decade, most successful franchise of the century. You know, so I don't think that's one that you want back because, hey, it was simple, no. it was to the point, and there you go. You were right. You were right. No, that, that, one, that one holds up. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that summed it up pretty well. Yeah. So I wouldn't change anything about that. I'm going to put you on the spot before I get to Euchre Morgan because, again, I mentioned the moment. So, okay, I'm, and you're going to tell me which was the loudest you ever heard a stadium. First one, of course, is when Edgar Renteria hits the ball off Charles Nagy to win the World Series for Florida in 97. Second uh-huh. one. Robin Ventura's Grand Slam single at Shea Stadium, Game 5, Mets Braves. Last one, Game 6, Yankees-Mariners, David Justice's home run to basically clinch that game and send the Yankees on to play the Mets. You tell me which of the three was your personal favorite and the loudest that you ever heard of ballpark. Well, of those three, as I remember it, the Justice home run was the loudest. Um, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Ventura home run is in many ways the most memorable because it was a grand slam single. He stopped between first and second. Would have been a grand slam. The final score of the game becomes 4-3 to three instead of 7-3. to three. It was a 15-inning game. Pouring rain for a good portion of it. Uh, and that crowd was very engaged and very loud. But there might have been a little bit of an energy dip as the game went to the five-and-a-half-hour mark. Um, So I think just for a single moment, not the entire game, but a single moment of the three that you mentioned, the Justice home run seemed to electrify the ballpark uh, the most. Now, of course, the Renteria base hit off Charles Nagy in the bottom of the 11th of the seventh game ended the World Series. And it was a big moment. We're talking about degrees of of excitement, and they're all at a very high level. But the Marlins played at that time in a football stadium. It was the Dolphins football stadium. It was oddly configured for baseball. Were the fans into it? Sure they were. Were they loud? Sure. But it didn't seem to me to be as loud as Shea Stadium um, for the Ventura Grand Slam single or Yankee Stadium a year later um, for the Justice home run. On the call with you in 97, as I mentioned, was Euchre and Morgan. And Morgan sadly not with us anymore. Euchre still very much is and going strong calling Brewers games. Uh, give me a good story about each man. Well, Joe Morgan is one of the most universally was and remains in memory, one of the most universally respected people um, in his sport of anyone I've ever known or worked with. Um, you, you could just tell. He didn't wear it on his sleeve. But players then, past and present, people around the game, umpires,
not only a Hall of Famer, but one of the most respected players in his time, one of the smartest players ever, could have been a manager if he'd wanted to do that. Um, and he just, he didn't have to announce his presence. When, when he showed up, you know, people just, you could feel the respect and the regard that they had for him. And it was an interesting counterpoint to Euchre, whose entire public persona, even though in truth he's utterly beloved and respected throughout baseball, but his entire persona was ineptitude. He made a career out of it. Lifetime batting average exactly 200, traded multiple times, etc., etc. So the one story that I like to tell that involves both of them is from that game six that we talked about before in 1995 in Atlanta uh, between Cleveland and uh, the Atlanta Braves. And at one point, Joe Morgan begins talking about his own World Series experiences. And he's mentioning Johnny Bench and Sparky Anderson and Pete Rose and Tony Perez. And when he's done, I turn from this first ballot Hall of Famer and two-time MVP, and I turn to Euchre just for the contrast, and I say, Euchre, did you ever play in the World Series? And he said, well, I was with the Cardinals in 64, but when we played the Yankees in the World Series, I was on the disabled list, which is what it was called then. I was on the disabled list. I said, what was wrong with you? He said, I had hepatitis, which seemed odd. I said, how did you get that? He said, the trainer injected me with it. And this was live on the air, obviously, self-deprecating as always. Like, the, the best thing he could do for the team was to not be available. And so the Cardinals then won the World Series, perhaps because he wasn't available to screw it up. That sounds like something Euchre would say. And like I said, if you want to listen, especially now with the MLB at Bad App being in play and you, you being able to tune into any game that you want, if you're not listening to Bob Euchre call a Brewers game, you're not doing it right. You got yeah, he's, he's still terrific. He's 87 years old and still on top of this game. Yeah, he's not just a baseball treasure, he's a national treasure. There's one more story I want to get in here, and you're a busy guy, and I appreciate you being here. Uh, Jeff Greenfield's going to be on this show next week, uh, and he told me to ask you about this. The, the day before the world changed, um, September 10th, 2001, you guys were at Rao's in New York City. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, we were at Rao's, um, and it's always a convivial atmosphere there, kind of an old-world Italian place. And it was me, Jeff Greenfield, and Robert Wall of Arliss fame. Um, and it was the kind of conversation that you'd normally have. We were talking about sports. We were talking about politics. Unaware, as, as you say, that the next day, the next morning, the world would change. Another footnote is that that next morning, I was on the Today Show because the lead story, after they got through uh, the other headlines... At about five minutes after seven, ten minutes after seven a.m., Katie Couric was talking to me about Michael Jordan announcing his return to the NBA to join the Washington Wizards. And so that was one of the top stories of the day. And by about 7.20, I was done with that and left the studio. And a short time after that, as you say, the world changed with the two planes flying into the World Trade Center. And the other story that we'll wrap up with, normally I would do rapid fire, but we don't have time for that. <laughs> I, mean, I grew up a wrestling fan. On the record with Bob Costas, of course, was the original title of the show. It's now back on the record. Um, that infamous Vince McMahon interview, we'll wrap up with that. Take me through that. Well, it started with the XFL. If it was just wrestling, he wouldn't have been on the show. 
the XFL had made a big splash. It got a big rating just out of curiosity, the first game on NBC. But it was on the network. It wasn't on NBCSN. It wasn't on ESPN 11 or something like that. It was on NBC on Saturday nights. And pretty soon, when the general shoddy quality of both uh, the product itself and its presentation on television became clear, it was getting, no exaggeration, literally the lowest ratings in the history of primetime network television, any network since the dawn of television. And so that was what the, uh, the interview was about at the beginning. And all the questions I asked were on point. Uh, he became annoyed early on because he wasn't used to a legitimate interview that had a journalistic slant. He was used to these kind of staged wrestling interviews. And then when we got to the wrestling, um, perhaps in retrospect, perhaps I was a little too hard on him, but his notion that I was constantly interrupting him, he interrupted me as often as I interrupted him because we were going back and forth. Uh, it was live, it's HBO, there were no commercials, so 27, 28 minutes of unremitting tension. It was good TV, and for the most part, I was more than satisfied, and now it's 20 years later, more than satisfied with the way I approached it. Uh, Vince and his fans, and wrestling fans, look at things differently than most of the rest of the world, may have a different view, but most of the people uh, whom I respect, in fact, all of them, um, viewed this as something which, which I handled as well as could be expected. Well, that concludes this episode of the Mike Today Podcast. Like I said, Bob's a busy guy, so we're not going to do rapid fire today like we normally do. Uh, Bob's got well, how long does rapid fire take, Mike? Well, actually, let's see how long it will take. It's five hit-and-run questions from me and five answers from you, so we'll see if we could squeeze it in before let's you jump. Let's, let's go to it and finish on that note. All right, so first, favorite venue to call a game in? Favorite venue, you said? Yes. Either Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. Funniest, uh, funniest athlete you ever covered? I don't know if you call him an athlete. He was a coach. He had been an athlete. Jim Valvano was very, very funny. Uh, the late Jim Valvano could have been a stand-up comedian, a wonderful guest. If you could interview third, if you could interview anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why? Well, insofar as I'm associated with sports, I mean, there are many historical figures that all of us would like to meet and or interview. But confining it to sports, I would say Jackie Robinson won and Babe Ruth won A. Fourth, if they're going to put Bob Costas in the electric chair tomorrow, what's his last meal? <laughs> the prospect of the electric chair might dampen my enthusiasm for the feast, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the best pizza you could ever get. You know, not some generic pizza, the best pizza you could ever get. And since I'm no longer worried about my cholesterol because the electric chair awaits, then I, I'm going to get a top quality, more than one, probably two cheeseburgers from a place like P.J. Clark's or the three or four places that are on the short list of great burgers uh, along with P.J. Clark's. And then I'm going to finish it off with, I might as well eat the entire carrot cake, but it's got to be a really good carrot cake. There's a wide range of carrot cakes, um, so there are some that I'm not so keen on. But if it's the right combination of ingredients, a great carrot cake hits the spot for me, and I'd probably down an entire bottle of wine, because what the hell, a bottle of red wine to accompany it, 
and that might temporarily take my mind off the horrible fate that awaited me. Last and, and, and least, so that, that way you can get to running, and I thank you for being here. I hope you had a good time. I hope I've done a good job. If you can go you back and, Oh, thank you. If you can go back in time, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself? Perfect is the enemy of the good. I didn't think of that myself. It's a well-known phrase. Um, you always want to aim for the best you can do, so perfection is an ideal, but you ought not beat yourself up if you get 95 in your own mind instead of 100. And sometimes I was too hard on myself. Even when other people were applauding what I did, I was always like, hey, I could have done that a little better, and why didn't I do that? And I would obsess over that. I'm better about it now. Um, and I always enjoyed what I did, but I think there were times when I might have enjoyed it even a little bit more if I wasn't so hard on myself. That concludes an outstanding episode of the Mike DeNaven Podcast. Bob Costas is back on the record. You can catch back on the record with Bob Costas on HBO. Uh, and if you're not watching that, you should. If you haven't caught up with some of his previous interviews, you should. You can also see him during the baseball season on MLB Network. Bob, I thank you so much for uh, being here. I'm really glad you made the time for me. And on behalf of Bob Costas, I am Mike Colon. We will see you next time. Take care, everyone, and stay safe. All right. Burn blue on the street, loose and complete under sky, so smoky blue green. I can't foresee a Dixie did she, so we dance the sidewalk clean. My memory is muddy, what's this river that I'm in? New Orleans is sinking, man, and I don't want to swim.
She said, Gordy, baby, I know exactly what you mean. She said, she said, I swear to God, she said. I swim. 